Hey guys, how you doing? This is Nate, and with me is Vern Boythris, and also my pastor, Jonathan Hunt. This is Rooted in Revelation podcast, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation of all of life. And what a better person to have than Vern Poitras, who very much attempts to do that, making a God-centered approach to all of life. Um, so if you guys don't know who Dr. Vern Poitras is, he has a PhD from Harvard at DTH at Stellenbosch, is distinguished professor in New Testament, biblical interpretation and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, where he's taught for 44 years. It's a long time. Dr. Poitras's academic interests include how Christianity and the Trinitarian nature of God impact all areas of life. He has also spent much of his career studying and teaching biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. For those who are new to Dr. Poitras's writing and teaching on these interests, he recommends several resources as places to start. Regarding Christianity and relationship to all areas of life, consider his books, Redeeming Science, Redeeming Philosophy, or Chance and the Sovereignty of God. A related book is In the Beginning Was the Word, which looks at the Trinitarian foundations for language. Another recent publication in this area is Redeeming Mathematics. Consider both his interview on this book and blog on the topic. They also, uh, Dr. Poitras has a website with John Frame. It's called, I think it's frame-poitras.org. Uh, is that right, Dr. Poitras? That's right. So. And uh, okay. and the uh, uh, I appreciate your reading off the, uh, the seminary website. It sounds like it needs to be updated because there's <laughs> another book, uh, The Lordship of Christ, which mm -hmm. I think is a good introduction book because it it talks in uh, its kind of umbrella coverage of the issue of of seeing and uh, serving Christ in all of life. Mm. Absolutely, that's another one to check out too for a good intro. And then also uh, regarding Dr. Poitras's uh, works on hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. He would also recommend starting with his books on Siphonic Theology and the Returning King. And other related books would include Inerrancy and Worldview, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses, and God-Centered Biblical Interpretation. So with the guests, I'm sure you uh, can appreciate that Poitras is uh, no doubt still active with his pen and typing and, and putting and publishing a lot of books. And how many books have you uh, published, do you think? Uh, it's over 25 over 25 yeah so it's a, it's a good bit it'll take up a good slot of your library that's for sure um so yeah so it, so for the guests that might not know who uh dr brum poitras is there's a good intro to who he is what he's about but obviously we're going to hear a little more from him so um dr poitras would you have anything to include on top of what you said already in regards to just intro uh introduction uh, no let's just go ahead Oh, all right. And also, I think, did I mention Pastor Jonathan Hunt's with me? Uh, I don't know if you want to say anything, Pastor. No, uh, a privilege to be called your pastor. <laughs> Great. So, uh, Dr. Poitras, maybe we could start by just, you know, before we get into your, your newest book on redeeming our thinking about history, a God-centered approach, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how and when the Lord saved you. Yes, um, I grew up in a family. Uh, my father and mother were Christian believers. We went to a Bible-believing church, and um, 
I'm really grateful just uh, thinking about that one thing um, because I was able to hear the gospel message from a young age. When I was nine years old, I went to a church camp and they gave an invitation for people to commit themselves to Christ. And I went forward. I was, um, I was, it was real for me at that point. And I knew it was, it was I who was doing it, not just the family, right? Because uh, we were regularly participating in, in the life of the church. But this was something I was deliberately doing. It was meaningful. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed Christ. And I, I put my trust in him. So years afterward, I said, that's when I became a Christian. And maybe it was. <laughs> but I've begun to wonder whether even before that, I didn't disbelieve. You know, I was, I was, uh, I was not hostile to the things that um, were going on in church and in the family. So I'm not sure. Maybe the Lord, you know, was had done something even earlier, but certainly that one point was a watershed and was a definite point of commitment. And if I was already a believer in some ways, it was a deepening of that commitment. And uh, then we we were in a Baptist church. So I, I when I came home from camp, uh, I joined the baptism class. Right, the pastor walked us through some basics, and then I was baptized nine years old. Of course, I had a lot of growing to do, but it, it, it was um, a serious commitment, and I began to read the Bible and, you know, to pray and, and more and that kind of thing. So that's, uh, that's a story of the beginnings. Excellent, and uh, actually, Pastor Jonathan Hunt has a similar experience. I think, uh, Pastor, you You've mentioned that you don't recall a time you didn't know the Lord. You kind of grew up in, in a Baptist church as well. And is that right? That is, that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys both have a similar testimony, but Poitras came in a little, uh, came in a little, I think later, right? You said nine, correct? Nine, nine years, years old. old yeah. 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 Well, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, you know, I was uh, saved through Assemblies of God. Uh, church and culture environment and but um all three of us kind of come from a baptist uh background so that's uh it's interesting <laughs> so so dr poitras could you tell us um when and how you decided to go into teaching and ministry after you know i'm sure years passed through all that but right when did well, you feel the call yeah god gave me a gift in mathematics i was good at it i enjoyed it it was fascinating from an early age, uh, I had an older brother, so I watched as uh, he would work with my father on on math things, and I would learn them. <laughs> I would learn them from what they were doing. I was uh, so I loved that area. So by the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a college teacher of mathematics, uh, and and uh, I was a Christian believer, so I thought. Well, you know, I'll be a witness to Christ on a secular campus. I'll help out the Christian group or groups on campus. That was my picture. But as I grew in Christ through the undergraduate and into graduate school, I, I get more and more hungry to learn more about the Bible and about theology. I read the, the undergraduate 
uh, time uh, there was an intervarsity group on campus, we were it. <laughs> there was a Mormon group, an intervarsity group, and that was it. It was very secondary place. So, so uh, I read all the intervarsity books I got my hands on, which was possible in those days. Now, you know, there, this is too many. And I was still hungry. So one thing led to another. By the time I was halfway through grad school, I realized that, that the interests of my heart had shifted, that it, that it was more in Bible and theology than it was in mathematics. I decided to finish my degree in mathematics, but the idea was, well, then I would devote the rest of my life to Bible and theology. I spent a year teaching mathematics, trying to do it in a Christian, a God-centered approach, if you will, uh, trying to do it in a distinctively Christian way because I'd been challenged in some of my reading uh, about that. And, and I was tired of just being a student, as you can imagine, by you know, having completed a doctorate in mathematics. So I wanted to take a break from that. Uh, so I taught one year at Fresno State College, but then I resigned the position to go to seminary. Westminster Theological Seminary, where I'm now teaching, but I was a student, of course, and um, I, I told the Lord, you can make of me anything you want, uh, but if you want to make me a pastor, that's your business, but you have to help me a lot because uh, I saw myself as a more bookish person and not a people person, and I knew that pastors, there's an element of both, of course, pastor can neglect study, but uh, it uh, one element of it is caring for the sheep. It's a very personal kind of thing, and I knew that I was not good at that. <laughs> so, so that was my entrance into seminary. I didn't know where the Lord was going to put me, uh, but I was ready for whatever He had. So, you know, that's a short end of it. But by the end of seminary. Uh, one or two of my professors encouraged me to go on to think in terms of further academic work, which I did. So that was kind of a signal of, I should think uh, of teaching the word of God as a definite option. Uh, I spent one summer interning in a church while I was in seminary. And uh, that was very illuminating. It was also very challenging, again, because the people element, right? And um, I wish I had more experience in that kind of thing, because I'm training people who are going to be pastors. The more experience I can have, first hands-on kind of thing, the better. But uh, my gifts, uh, I guess, well, it's, it's sure that the Lord knew <laughs> right better than I did. Uh, my gifts were, were academic. I was comfortable in the world of teaching. So that's where I ended up. And, you know, after some additional years of study, I was hired by Westminster Seminary to teach in the New Testament department. So that, you know, that was 1976 when I was first hired in teaching. So that's what I've been doing ever since. What years did you go to um, Westminster? And who uh, were some of your teachers? Yeah, 71 to 74. Um, uh, systematic theology was taught by John Frame, Robert Strimple, and Norman Shepard. New Testament by Richard Gaffin, uh, Leslie Sloat, John Skelton, 
some of these names are more famous than others. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Practical Theology by Ed Clowney, Jack Miller, and Jay Adams. Uh, Old Testament by uh, Ray Dillard, Palmer Robertson, and Thomas Nicholas. Uh, Apologetics by John Frame and, uh, and uh, Robert Nitz. Excellent. So, oh, church history, Paul Woolley and, and Claire Davis. Forgot church history. Anyway, uh, I was deeply appreciative. I learned a, a, a huge amount, and I'm convinced that seminary education can profit a lot of people who often don't think about that because they're not aiming to be pastors, but it just is an enormous amount of spiritual and intellectual growth that, that um, I, I profited from. Mm. Excellent. So, Dr. Poitras, how, how did you end up selecting Westminster, Philadelphia as a seminary that you were attracted to or that you ended up going to? Was there anything kind of that kind of was part of that story that led you there or was it just kind of what was yeah, near? So, yeah. yeah, well, it was because um, in grad school, I was in the, uh, the Boston area, uh, a huge amount. You know, that's really a heavy university area. But a number of Westminster faculty traveled up there and gave uh, very special talks and sermons and things. I met Cornelius Van Til in that connection. I met Ed Clowney, uh, who traveled quite a bit, was in effect one of the things he was trying to do was recruit students, <laughs> right? Uh, so obviously to serve the Lord by, by the talks he gave. But, but uh, that drew my attention to the seminary. And I had the habit because I was so interested that some special speaker would come. I would try to read the books that he written before he arrived. <laughs> so I learned more about Westminster Seminary, particularly Cornelius Van Til and uh, Edmund Clowney, who was then the president of the seminary. So I was impressed. I actually later visited the seminary uh the campus and sat in on some classes uh, but then i went and i had this year of teaching at fresno state college as i mentioned out in california well california was where i was born and raised so fuller seminary was there i knew about it in fact my undergraduate work had been caltech which is next door to fuller seminary so i um uh, one of my friends wayne grudem had started seminary there and invited me to come. I came in the Christmas break and, or into January, I forget. I visited down there and uh, looked in on the classes, talked to a professor or two uh, and, and stayed with the Grudems. Uh, and he wanted to persuade me to come there because he was defending inerrancy against professors who had who had, uh, for, for all practical purposes, has abandoned it, uh, I'm sorry to say. But he was firmly convinced that the Bible was the pure word of God and therefore uh, it was completely true. And so, so he was trying to defend it and wanted me to come and help him. Instead, I persuaded him to come to Westminster. <laughs> it's a little funny, but... but uh, the contrast was partly, I don't want to badmouth Fuller, you know, there, there's many good things about it, but this inerrancy was a problem for me, and I think it should be a problem to other people 
and the fact that they they wouldn't uh, uphold it. Uh, so, so, but in addition, the classes in Westminster, it was all about what the Bible taught, and the classes at Fuller were partly about what the theologians and biblical scholars taught. And I thought, I know there's value in both of those strategies, but I was kind of tired of just reading what everybody else thought. <laughs> so, so that aspect of Westminster appealed to me as well. Very great. Pastor, did you have anything you wanted to mention in that uh, spot there? Um, just I'm, I'm grateful that uh, we have men who stand upon the word of God and the inerrancy, fallibility of scripture. Um, it's a doctrine that must be fought because if it will not be continued to be fought, it will be quickly cast aside. And we've seen that over and over again. But we're thankful that God raises up faithful men who will stand for the truth. Yes, I agree with you absolutely. And one of the things that happened during my career is the organization and, and work of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, because there were a number of men who saw this as a, a problem in their generation. So in, um, a little earlier, but then there was a major meeting in 1978, which was shortly, I was near the beginning of my teaching career. Uh, I had the privilege of, of actually attending the major um, uh, get together in Chicago. So, so, you know, a statement was drawn up, which is still uh, a statement to which people refer to this day as a good, uh, a good uh, definition and explanation of what inerrancy really is, as opposed to certain straw man that sometimes people put up. So I'm glad that that that's that was done. And but in a sense, the work has to be redone every generation. We have to make sure that that we understand. Uh, the, the God in his own instruction in the Bible is affirming that his word is true and and that it's you know that's that's you know foundation for all doctrine when you come to think of it. Excellent. Pastor, did did you have anything you want to add there? Um just when I was in seminary, my uh my privilege was to be Dr. Duncan's um, teaching assistant and sit in on each of his classes on the doctrine of scripture. And each at the beginning of each semester, all these freshmen coming in and he would take a poll as to who uh, would consider themselves as holding to the inerrancy of scripture. And at the, it, it would usually would appall me how few hands would go up and by the end of the semester, he, he definitely had them convinced that uh, on that certain doctrine. So I was very appreciative for seminary and for men like uh, Dr. Duncan, who would stand up and convince all these students of this most basic foundational doctrine. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. So <clears throat> going a little forward, Dr. Boythers, Maybe you could tell us a little bit, bit about who's most impacted your own thinking, uh, who's influenced your own work, and who's really played a big role in your own ideas of philosophy and theology. Well, I have to acknowledge the role of my parents. 
you know, I mean, they were there. <laughs> and uh, uh, they were there from an early age. My father taught Sunday school. So, you know, there was this solidity and they regularly they were faithful in going to church, that kind of thing. Um, they were not uh, a professional theologian or anything like that. But, you know, that, that influence is just so important. But then I know what you're asking about is more later on. And uh, there I would single out especially two people, John Frame and Edmund Clowney, both professors of mine at Westminster. And uh, all, the, all the faculty, of course, but outstanding those two people. Uh, Frame was such a clear thinker and such a clear communicator. I had this background in mathematics, you see. And, you know, as somebody who was clear and concise, and he was trained in analytical philosophy, although he saw the limitations of its secular uh, philosophy. But uh, the, the idea of thinking things through and having things clear was there in his teaching. And, that, uh, and, and of course, his perspectives, right? I picked that up from him and adopted it as my own. So he was an influence and Ed Clowney was one of the great preachers of his entire generation. Uh, he preached Christ and, and it was marvelous. It made you just deepen your love for Christ. Uh, there was nothing uh, comparable to, to what happened with some of his sermons to happen to me and, and to many who listened. So I'm very appreciative of those Men and Clowney taught me that the whole Bible has its center in Christ. And I've tried to, you know, continue uh, and explore that uh, insight in my own career. Very good. So do you, uh, so I guess we'll, we'll start kind of diving into your, your, one of your newest books here on history, your God-centered approach to history. Um, so do you, do you consider your method of approach, I guess, specifically with perspectivalism or multi-perspectivalism, do you consider that an innovative thing within the reform world? Do you think that's uh, something that's new? Do you th think it's something that's orthodox? Like, how would you, I guess, introduce tri-perspectivalism more? Right. Or well, well, John Frame, and people can follow uh, this on, on our website because we have some introductory articles. But John Frame has made the point that only God has infinite knowledge and human knowledge is finite. And of course, we differ from one another. And the, uh, if it hadn't been for sin, those differences would have been glorious rather than you know contentious. So the idea of multiple perspectives is actually connected to human finiteness right, that different people will know different things and will look at them from different angles. But I believe its root ultimately is in the Trinity and the three persons of the Trinity, because each person has exhausted knowledge, but each, each person's knowledge is personal knowledge. The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, according to Matthew eleven twenty seven, And that's not only the verse asserts that, but it asserts that as the foundation for the fact that, that now the Son reveals this knowledge of the Father to us. So what we're getting is deeply personal knowledge. 
when we're reading anything in the Bible, because of course the son is the mediator behind the human authors. So I believe the roots are deep, but if you want, you can just take it at a very a practical level and say, if you look at the same text or the same subject matter from three different angles, you're likely to see more than if you just look at it from one angle. Now, people get scared because they think, are we talking about relativizing truth, right? And relativism has become a big thing in American and European culture in the last decades. But actually the idea of, of triperspectivalism who began with John Frame and, and some roots of it with Kenneth Pike and his studies of language, but that was long before postmodernism was even a word. <laughs> I don't know if there was a, or it was maybe it was a word for some kind of style and architecture or something, but, but uh, the relativism actually has become dominant much later. So John Frame and I find it necessary to say, no, no, we're not talking about that. God knows all truth and any truth that anybody knows has to connect and harmonize with truth in, in God's mind. So we're talking actually about absolute truth, absolute truth in God's mind. But we have access to it as finite beings because God reveals all kinds of things in the Bible, but also uh, through the world he's made. So uh, the, the challenge from my point of view is not whether we can access truth. That's, that's a problem for the world, the non-Christian world, right? Because you become skeptical and you think if so many people have so many different views on things, who knows, right? That's their attitude. And it seems dogmatic to insist <clears throat> that there's anything like absolute ethics, even murder, right? Which is very basic. But certainly the idea that there is only one true God, right? You shall have no other gods before you. The first commandment. No, these people are not going to accept that. So it's a relativist. But for us, the problem is the opposite. Namely, that the, the truth that God is giving to us in the Bible, but also subordinately in the world, is so rich that we can't master it. Right? So you need multiple perspectives to just soak it in more and more <laughs> deeply. So it's actually the very opposite problem, namely the problem of too many riches, <laughs> rather than the problem of skepticism. And well, I'm not sure I have anything at all. So for me, it's just, it's very different. But I realize, you know, we're in a culture where it's important that we we um, stressed there was guidelines, right? What the Bible says is completely true. And you know, if you lose your roots in the Bible, then you can wander all kinds of ways. And that's symptomatic of what's happening in Western culture, really, that people are wandering around because they are no longer trusting that the Bible is the word of God. It's very different if you begin with that trust. So uh, I admit, that the conscious use of perspectives is fairly new, though you can find some of it in Dorothy Sayers and Ken Pike and John Frame uh, and, and precursors in Cornelius Van Til, and a lot of Reformed people feeling that theology, all the topics hold together. But that wasn't developed into self-conscious idea of perspectives until mostly John Frame's work, I would say. Uh, but 
anyway, now that it's there, why not use it, right? So when I uh, consider the topic of history and the study of history, I illustrate how, in fact, the Trinitarian nature of God impinges on our whole understanding of what's happening in history. I can illustrate with, with the fact that these three, three things I develop a little bit in my book. To, to do historical understanding, you have to have three aspects simultaneously. You have to have events. There has to be something that's happening in the world. And we take that for granted. But if you're a real skeptic, you don't even know what you're saying, what you're seeing is all a dream, right? So, so people can be threatened by that. The events are what they are because God has planned them and brings them about, of course, with there's human initiative and human choices, but God has an eternal plan, which is operative in everything. So the events have, are there with meaning. And that's the second thing, meaning of the events. And there are norms or ethical norms. We can judge human action in terms of good and bad moral decisions because we have a standard ultimately in God and then subordinately in his revelation, the Ten Commandments and so on. So we have events and we have meanings and we have persons who are analyzing. Well, you've got to have that too, right? Uh, historical meaning is nothing without persons who can appreciate it. Well, God is the divine personal God who is the ultimate interpreter, but he made us in his image. So that too is absolutely essential if you're going to do history. Now you say, well, what about the non-Christians? Can't they do historical research? Well, if they're monists and they think the world is illusion, they're not going to be motivated. So it's actually Christian worldview that is a large amount of the motivation for doing historical research because you think events are important because they're made important by the fact that God is working his plan out. But you have to have all three of these things, as I'm saying, right? The meanings and the events and the persons. Well, all three interlock. But all three go back to the one God who imparts meanings, who controls the events, and who is a personal God, right? And who makes us in his image. And those three things in turn correlate. Now, this is, gets very mysterious with three persons of the Trinity, because God the Father, in some ways, is the authority, the norm, who is the origin of meanings. God the Son is the controller of history, who brings about the events. And God the Holy Spirit indwells us and enables us to see the meaning of the events. Now, that, that's oversimplistic, however, because all three persons are there in all three things. <laughs> but I nevertheless think in terms of preeminence, you can see some subtle differentiation in the role of the three persons in the works of history, which they bring about. So those three persons and the three uh, the different uh, ways in which they're involved are the origin of these three perspectives on the events. And you have to have, as I say, you have to have all three to really do historical research. So at that point, I'm saying even the non-Christians are actually secretly depending on God. They won't acknowledge it, right? They may be atheists, but they live in God's world, right? And they're made in God's image. And, and the meanings that they're searching for are meanings ultimately in the mind of God. So for me, that's part of understanding 
history and its real meaning is grounded in God, right? And even the non-Christians can't totally escape that. They try, but they can't escape because it's God's world, as I say. So what are some of the dangers that, that, that could come up? Like, if you don't include all three of these perspectives, that ultimately go back to God. Like, can you overemphasize one of those perspectives? Um, right. I, I know in your book, you talk about reductionistic approaches and you talk about some people go full bore, you know, rationality or full bore irrationality. Maybe you could talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I can illustrate it fairly simple because the, the area of meanings, if that totally dominates, what you get is these grand schemes. Marxism is such a thing because Marxism, it was atheistic but it could tell you the meaning of history, right? It could tell you that the triumph of the proletariat was inevitable and, and so on and so on. Well, it's too grand for its own good, right? It really, it, it's carried away by its own kind of utopian vision, which doesn't actually match reality in detail. And so that shows the, the um, it shows the inadequacy of an approach which wants the meanings and these grand scheme picture to dominate everything else. The second approach is dominate, let the events dominate everything. And what you get is chronicle. You could just get one meaningless thing after another, right? Just a list of everything happens, but it's all meaningless. It's like in Macbeth where the guy says, it's all sound and sig fury signifying nothing, right? If you don't have meanings and you just get a meaningless list, a chronicle. And the third uh, dominant approach would be a subjectivistic approach where it's all about imposing your own meanings because nobody knows. And that's a, it's akin to certain of the, the uh, movements in postmodernism, right? Which emphasize the diversity of human opinions. So it's all up to you what you make, you know, you invent the meaning of your own life. And uh, you also invent the meaning of whatever events that you, uh, you study. Pastor Jonathan, did you have anything that you want to ask or add? Yeah, um, perhaps, perhaps two questions um, to follow up well in this section. And that is, um, that chapter is entitled, What We Need in order to think about history. Um, so you're not necessarily, if I'm understanding you right, defining history as events, people, and meaning. You're just saying that the perspectives on which to look at history and to think about history are from these three aspects, is that correct? Yes, although if you look out at the events actually, then there are already meanings because God is in charge and there are already events and there are already persons active. But I'm looking at mostly from the standpoint of the interpreter of history, right? So there's another person who's standing back from, you know, who's doing the life of Napoleon, right? So Napoleon has his own personal point of view. Understanding him from inside out would be a significant thing. But then the person who's doing it is another person with his own uh, input and he has to be able to to uh, have empathy 
with the people that he's studying if he's going to get beyond the level of chronicle, right? One thing after another, but why are people doing what they're doing? And so the commonality of human nature that God has given us, right? That's an important feature that we depend on for historical uh, study. Um, and then perhaps for our listeners, could you give us a, a good reformed definition of history? Oh, it's the unfolding events according to the plan of God. How's that? That sounds great. Thank but you. the plan gives you meaning, right? The events gives you the events. And typically, we're not thinking of the history of the solar system. We're thinking of human history. So that gives you the persons. Great. <clears throat> uh, Pastor, do you have anything else? Or is that you're good there? That before we go I'm good on this one? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so Dr. Poitras, you know, um, not to go completely off topic, but maybe bringing it back to the the idea of multi-perspectivalism. Now, I can't think of any specific objections to your approach, but what are some of the ones that you've come across, maybe generally speaking, of, that maybe you could answer for some of our listeners that may be thinking some of the same things? Or I noticed you mentioned relativism, or is there any other kind of pushback that you've received in regards to your multi-perspectival approach? Yeah, um, I think the worry about relativism is probably number one. I think there are people who feel that um, things are too much in motion. They're not pinned down enough uh, once you have more than one perspective. And I can empathize that, with that because as human beings, it's as if God built us so that we have to take one perspective at a time. <laughs> and and if you're just have a kaleidoscope of perspectives and it's going too fast, right? The kaleidoscope is changing too fast and you have a mess, right? And you don't really seize on anything. So I think we have to have a sense of patience there and to understand, and I've sometimes emphasized this, not everyone is equally gifted to use more than one perspective. I think we're called on by God. Well, it's clear we're called on by God to love one another, uh, especially in the body of Christ, but even love your neighbor as yourself. And to love somebody else means uh, trying to appreciate that person and beginning to listen to what it looks like for him or her, right? So already you have the, the beginning of two perspectives, your perspective and the other person's perspective. Now, it doesn't mean you have to accept everything, right? People may be even delusional, or they may have uh, evil uh, moral ideas, but they're still made in the image of God, and they're still, uh, in Christian love, we respect the fact that they are persons, they are human beings, and so there's a sense of, of, um, of a commitment to listening and understanding. Um, some people are better at it than other people, and but when it uh, when it uh, goes a long way, then you already, as I say, you have two perspectives, or you know, you have three or four people, you have four perspectives, right? So, the idea, in some ways, is as old as the hills. Right? It's as old as human nature, but becoming explicit about it is new, 
But not everybody has to be equally explicit. If you love other people, it's going to happen, whether you think in terms of perspectives or not. Excellent. Uh, so you also, over the course of many of your books, uh, you know, making God the center of everything regarding sociology or philosophy or mathematics or history, like what we're talking about now, oh, what's what do you mean by a god-centered approach and is that different from other approaches that people take yeah well i think it unfortunately i would say it is because the universities the major universities of the world have progressively drifted away from not only believing in anything like the god of scripture but from having that operate as they're investigating the various topics that you know university departments investigate so what has happened in the west is what might be described as a pure horizontalism you think that everything is about the relationship horizontally between human beings and horizontally between you and the subhuman environment and, and God is just left out of the equation. So, and if God exists, he's somewhere far off, irrelevant to the study of, let's say, language or the study of logic or study of history. Whatever study you're going to do, whether God exists is irrelevant. And of course, what that does, it, the desire is that we wouldn't have religious wars. Well, the religious wars, there's always much evil in them uh, and uh, and so it's understandable in a sense that there should be reaction finding if people can't agree about the religion we've got to some find some basis by which we can live together and it'll be reason reason disconnected from god then but you see that's already a step away from god so as i say the universities of the world have become horizontalists look at everything as if God, if he exists at all, is irrelevant, and the religious differences are irrelevant. Well, I believe the Bible is true. So God is there, whether people <laughs> are willing to admit that he's there or not, and he's there in everything. He's there in the ins and out and warp and whoop of everything that he's made. Not that he's identical, right? We believe in a creator-creature distinction, which is clearly there in the Bible. But the creatures are testifying to their creator. They're showing the attributes of God in his power, in his eternal uh, plan, uh, in the very uh, constitution of what they are. So that, that should affect every academic discipline under the sun. It should be that we'd study those disciplines with an eye to how they testify to God and how they mirror, you know, the sum of his wisdom. And, and it's not happening in the major universities. So uh, I was influenced in this, as you probably know, uh, Nate, by, by Abraham Kuyper. Uh, Kuiper was a human being like this. All he had his flaws, but he was convinced that Christ was Lord of all, and that that was a fundamental driving principle for him. And he wanted to see that embodied 
in the academic world, in the political world, in the social world, in the family, everywhere he wanted it. And uh, it was a tremendous vision. It, it, it gripped me, it influenced me because I think it's there in the Bible. That's where it, it originates. So my book, The Lordship of Christ, is kind of updating uh, what Abraham Kuyper did and trying to learn some lessons because I say uh, he and his followers, uh, I admire their zeal. I admire what they were trying to do. But inevitably, you know, they were sinners like us all, right? And so they were not perfect. So we can learn from them. But uh, I continue to believe that uh, all the world belongs to God and that we should honor him, right? And, and whatever you're doing, do all for the glory of God, as 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And that includes our academic work and includes not simply that I do my work uh, faithfully and honestly, right? And that I put in a, a day's work and don't slough off. But it means that I think about what I'm doing as in service to God, and I see the hand of God in uh, everything that is related to what I'm doing. So uh, I wanted to do that, particularly for the academic sphere, because the universities of this world are not, frankly, a good example. Right, you enter that atmosphere, and the idea is the Bible is irrelevant, God is irrelevant, let's try to discover the truth. Well, you've already made two wrong steps, right? <laughs> One, God is irrelevant. New, God of the Bible is irrelevant. You made two wrong civics and you expect to arrive at the truth? Really? <laughs> right? It's going to distort everything, sometimes subtly and sometimes massively. Very good. Yeah. And I, and I know there's some Christians that might, you know, have some hesitations about, um, you know, bringing Christ Lord over every area of life. I know. Um, I haven't done too much research, but I know like two kingdom theology, they kind of have, they approach things and they want to make, you know, the common sphere and, the, you know, God's church is another sphere. What are some of your thoughts, I guess, on, on some of those, you know, cause I know Christians will approach things where they want to respect the secular outside of the church and, and kind of do academics or politics or whatever it is kind of in a distinct way from the church's ministry in life. Right. Well, I think there's a, a very important and positive insight in distinguishing the church. Church is any, unlike any other institution or social organization on the face of the earth, because it's uniquely established by God to be the unique place in which we gather together as part of a Christian body and we offer our service and worship to God and we, we celebrate Lord's Supper and baptism, we do unique things that no other organization is authorized to do. And the authorities in the church, the teaching elders, the ruling elders, uh, have an authority from God, but like all other institutions, that authority is limited. And they are limited by the word of God. So, so they can teach that abortion is wrong, for example, because I believe that's an inference, a legitimate influence uh, from the sixth commandment. But they ought not to teach, well, this particular abortion law is the one we ought to have because that gets into the area of, well, you know, how do we structure the law in such a way that it, it takes into account many things in the nature of society 
and there's going to be disagreements among Christians. You can't simply deduce all the details of a particular law directly from the Bible. So the authority of the church is limited to speak according to the word of God, but not to make pronouncements in the name of the church concerning all kinds of, you know, political or social or, or um, uh, economic matters that are not in, in, uh, not inferable from the Bible itself. But those who go out and serve the Lord in various careers and in their families and so on, family life is, is an important area. You think about it, human sexuality, important area, right? We're, we're, uh, we're servants of Christ 24-7. We're never off duty, even when you're asleep, right? You're sleeping for the sake of Christ. And, and you know, you're doing it to, to have your body renewed and because God cares about that. So, so even your sleep, you don't cease being a servant of Christ. You can't turn that off and say, well, now, you know, I'm at my job. I'm going to flip the switch, right? <laughs> right? Now I'm in the secular. No, you're not. And if your boss uh, and the two kingdoms people would agree, if your boss tells you, look, you, we've got to lie to this particular client because we've gotten ourselves into a fix, then the employee says, no, I can't do that. Uh, and, and, and can appeal perhaps to certain common grace insights of saying, you know, this is not going to help your company in the long run. It may appear to help you in the short run. But ultimately, you got to say what Joseph said, how can I do this sin against God? Right, that's the ultimate racist. And, and it's an opportunity, you might say, to evangelize the boss too, and to say, you know, there are things that are more important than, than uh, making money. And you too, as a person, ought to consider that. So there's that kind of thing. But I think because the Western world has been so influenced by the Christian faith over a period of centuries, then in a sense, the general culture has adopted standards of honesty and truth and, uh, and of, uh, of respect for other people that are kind of secularized forms of Christian values. We don't appreciate sometimes the degree to which this quote secular culture is actually still benefiting from a lot of Christian input. But, but the, people tend to feel because of that, well, there are all these areas that are neutral. Well, take something like chemistry. I haven't written a book on chemistry, but to me, it's a marvelous display of the goodness of God. Why can't we be celebrating the goodness and, and wisdom and wonders of God in the carbon atom? There's the things about the carbon atom being what it is that make life possible. Why can't we do that in the classroom? Well, if you're in a Christian college, hopefully you can do it. But you're not supposed to see those things. You're not supposed to see the full dimensions of reality because you're trained in a university setting to, to have blinkers on, right? And I think that's a kind of falsification of, of reality when you, you study that way. So I wrote two books, as you mentioned, one on mathematics and one on logic, because those two are usually the last strongholds where people think that's neutral. God has nothing to do with that. But of course, he, he's the origin of logic. He's consistent with himself. He's the origin of mathematics. He's one and three. So, 
So it's futile, it seems to me, to, to think of mathematics as a neutral subject. Everybody agrees that two plus two is equal to four, but why is it so? They won't agree on that. In fact, there are three or four different philosophies of mathematics uh, that try to explain that in very different and contradictory ways. So when it comes down to looking at the details, when I see that two plus two is equal to four, it's related to the world of apples and oranges. It's related upwards to the self-consistency of God. It's related outwards to the beauty of language and the specialized language of mathematics. It's got all these connections because God has made and, and specified and, and put in order all those connections and we're depending on them all the time and the mathematician is depending on them all the time. So for me, two plus two is equal to four is an opportunity to praise God. And it's not just a truth floating out there that is independent of God. That is very good, Dr. Poitras. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, <clears throat> Pastor Jonathan, do you have anything that you'd like to ask? Or... Yeah, related to this question, God-centered, um, I know there's a lot of books that have been published, some that say God-centered, some that say Christ-centered. Do you see God-centered being a bit more accurate because of tri-perspectivalism? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think they compete with one another uh, because God is a Trinitarian God. In that respect, God is the final foundation for all of created reality. God is three persons, not one, right? So we have Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, but if we ask, how do we come to know that Trinitarian God? It is through Christ. Right? So if you start with a Trinitarian God, then you have to say, knowing God, I've got to wrestle with my own need for salvation, my own need for straightening my mind out, renewing my mind through Christ. And, and my need is a sinner. And uh, I can't just pretend that all is right with me as I go about trying to think about God. So the one leads to the other and vice versa, right? Because Christ introduces us to the Father and the Spirit, particularly in the Gospel of John more than any other place. But of course, elsewhere in the New Testament as well, it's clear that you don't really know who Christ is apart from the fact that it's the Father who sent him into the world to bring us life. Right? So you've got to have the Father and you've got to have the Spirit whom he sent to illumine your minds to understand who he is. So, so to be Christ-centered, you find in Christ this instruction about the Trinitarian context for his work. And if you're Trinity-centered, then you find that Christ is the preeminent one who, through whose public work and death and resurrection we come into fellowship with the Trinitarian God. So uh, that's two perspectives, isn't it right? Whichever one you start with, it's going to lead, if you start right, it's going to lead you into a full affirmation of the other. Do you have anything else, Pastor Jonathan, that you want to ask or? Uh... I have more questions as we get down the list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I think we're uh, getting down to, because we kind of uh, worked through a couple of them all within one kind of branch, uh, sort of say, but so I guess if, if we come down to, you know, com coming back to your book, like, 
you talk about how important it is for our faith to be, or well, our faith is grounded in history, and history isn't separated from our faith. Maybe you could speak a little bit about that, why it's so important that we understand our history and faith in relation to the Old New Testament specifically, if that makes sense as a question. Yes, yes, it's a good question. Well, if you open the Bible and read it, I mean, the, the most obvious level is there's a lot about history. There's a lot of historical reports of what happened through the centuries, particularly in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the Acts. And there are future prophecies that are really about events, real events, that are still to take place. So the Bible has elements of history woven all the way through it. So if God says, you know, this is what I'm going to talk about, then we've got to respect that. But there's something even deeper when you kind of analyze it, that is compare Christianity, which I believe is the one true religion because Christ is the only way to God, you compare it with some of the false religions, which have fragments of the truth. They're counterfeit religions, I sometimes like to say. And, and it doesn't mean that we disrespect those who are adherents to those religions, but it does mean that they're lost, right? That they need to be uh, uh, told the truth and prayed for that they will be delivered from captivity to falsehoods. You look at those other religions, then many of them, history doesn't matter. Buddhism, for instance, the primary thing is about escaping from the cycle of rebirths by enlightenment. And the Buddhism is what I call a religious philosophy. It basically gives you an explanation of how to save yourself independent of any historical event. Now, there was a man, Buddha, right, who did live and who discovered allegedly the path to enlightenment and who told others about it. But all that history is really irrelevant because the main thing is to know the path of enlightenment. So that's an illustration of, an of, a, of, a, of a, a religion which is essentially independent of history, which is essentially a philosophy. Hinduism is similar. Islam even, although there's a story about Muhammad and his, his uh, being called to be a prophet, and there's a story of some Old Testament prophets. So it's inherited from the Bible, a few fragments of the sense of history, but nothing happens that's important. It's just God who judges you according to your works. And, and the, the details of the history of Muhammad's life and so on, although people studying them, they're interested in them, they, they are not the core of what Islam teaches. Or you take traditional re religions of spiritism, right? A worship of the spirits in the trees or, or propitiating the spirits of the ancestors and those kinds of things. That's a perennial thing. It's, it's virtually independent of history. What, what one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that distinguishes Christianity and the Judaism of the Old Testament. Now, the, many modern Jews, again, it's become a tradition where they, it's ritual and very little more. So that's not historical. But the original, sort of the Jewish religion, the Old Testament, that was very historical. Right? And Christianity says, now we've got the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. The fulfillment has come to pass in Christ, in the birth, 
of public ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, those are all events in time and space that are essential for people to be saved. People are not going to be saved just by saying, oh, God, God's saying, oh, I forgive you. I'll let you off the hook. It's not that easy because God is just. God is holy. Sin has to be punished. That's the part of the meaning of, of the coming of Christ and the meaning of his crucifixion. He had to die. That had to take place in time and space. It's, it's uh, very contrary to just about every false religion in the world because of the way in which the very salvation of us and the, and the transformation of the new world, new heaven and new earth, it all comes to a focus in the work of Christ, which took place in space and time. Very important to affirm that. And the Old Testament pre prepares for that because the Old Testament is about God working in time and space. So he raises up Noah, right? And he saves Noah and his family from the flood. Those really things really happen. And apart from them, we wouldn't be here, right? The whole human race would be dead. That's really good. Um, thank you, Dr. Poitras. Pastor, did you have anything? I know you mentioned you had some probably questions and some of the further questions uh, that we're asking. Did you have anything there? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to our faith and being a, a basis for understanding the history around us, um, you know, if we were asking kind of an application of the math, like why does zero factorial equal one? How does that show God? Or something like this we are in now in history um and i know that one of the i think it's like three pages long one of the chapters and it's even in the subtitle that it's limited <laughs> our knowledge of current events but how would you uh help pastors minister congregation and, and congregants even understand current events that the aspect of getting meaning we see the events yeah. we see the persons involved but how do we get meaning and see the meaning in current events and, and the closer they are to our own both time, but also closer to us emotionally, um, it, it can be difficult in the moment to, to, to attribute meaning to that. Right. But as pastors, of course, people are asking why lots of times, why did this uh, event happen in my life? Uh, how can we, um, even though it's limited, but can you give us some uh, some very practical advice on this? Yes, uh, an excellent question. And and there's a, tr a struggle that you can see in the pages of the Bible itself. Uh, for instance, in the life of Job and in some of the Psalms where the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? Some of the psalmists struggle with the fact of, look, the wicked are prospering. Why? You know, why don't you do something? Where are you? <laughs> and sometimes very frank addresses to God. Well, at least they're going to God. And I think those Psalms can actually be a model for us because there's one of the lessons is don't give up on God just because something awful happens, right? And, and God appears to have been nowhere around, right? Because the psalmist experienced this. And I'm convinced that God had that written up in the Psalms, partly to tell us, look, I know all about this. <laughs> and don't, don't think 
I don't know that people struggle with all these questions and that Job struggled. So there's a remarkable amount when you, you know, add everything up, there's a remarkable amount that deals with this kind of inward struggle. Why are things happening to me? It deals sometimes with the fact that people give wrong answers. Job's three friends were convinced, look, Job, all these things, these disasters come on you in the same day. Come on, give us a break. This must be a judgment of God. This must be because you have some secret sin that is just horrible and that God is judging you for. They thought they had it together, right? They thought they knew the meaning of Job's sufferings. And of course, by the end of the book, they're proved wrong. But the other thing about the book of Job is that to the very end of the book, none of the actual participants in the story know what we as readers know, that there's been this divine counsel and Satan come in and accusing. And it's partly about the vindication of God's righteousness and partly about the vindication of Job that he isn't serving God just because he's getting goodies out of it. So that's in the background. But Job, to the very end of the book, he never knows that. He never knows. And people go through their lives not knowing. All these things happen to them. And many times it's the sufferings, right? The sufferings are the worst. All these sufferings are happening to me. And I don't have an explanation. Job never got an explanation of it. But standing back from the story, we can see some things. We can see sometimes there is a partial explanation. Uh, Romans 5, for instance, talks about that suffering trains us to endure. Endurance brings proof that we have stood the test. And this proof is a ground of hope that suffering can be used by God. It doesn't mean that people can't become bitter, right? They can, they can react to suffering in ungodly ways but they can also grow. And you have testimonies, people like Johnny Erickson, for instance, who was paralyzed uh, from a neck down uh, in, in a freak swimming accident when she was about 16 or 17 years old. Well, she suffered enormously, but she's worked through it. And God has used it in her life, not only personally for her spiritual growth, but for others. So sometimes we can see things but sometimes it takes a long time to see them. And sometimes one of the challenges is to believe in God, to trust in God, even when things look very dark. But the ultimate answer, I believe, is in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Job, I believe, is a prelude to that. Because Job is a righteous sufferer, not that he was sinlessly perfect, but he is a righteous suffering in the terms of the sufferings that he endured are not because of his personal sins. And, uh, and comparatively, he is a righteous man. In fact, more righteous than his three friends. Right? That's, that comes out in the book. He's a righteous sufferer. Well, that's a type. That's a foreshadowing of the suffering of Christ, who is now the perfect righteous sufferer. Why does Christ suffer? If there's anybody in the world who should not have suffered, it would have been Jesus Christ, right? There's no reason. Well, there is a reason, right? And in this case, God gives us the reason. It's so precious, both because he gives us the reason and because the reason itself unveils the heart of God, 
a God who is trustworthy, a God who does love us enough to send his own son, who, who Christ who loves us enough to die for us, that's the ultimate proof of God's love, right? So when people are going through sufferings and they're dealing with this, these things, what they need above all is to stand back and saying, am I suffering as much as Christ, right? What is this saying to me? Is it an opportunity for me to meditate on the fact that Christ suffered for me and to ask God that he would use this in my life, that I would honor him? I've sometimes said to people, look, you have only one life on earth in which you're going to suffer. You have all eternity to praise God. This is the only time in all eternity when you have the privilege of suffering for him. That kind of changes things. It doesn't eliminate the sufferings. It doesn't make them, you know, uh, uh, you can just dismiss them that they no longer have an effect on you. But it does change the context. So I think there's a lot of instructions about scripture that do, in effect, allow us to interpret our own personal sufferings, but also some of the sufferings of society, that society suffers, and it's partly a warning. Jesus uses this example, where he says, of the, there's uh, the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, and 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. He uses those examples, or contemporary examples, right? They're, they're uh, up near the top in people's minds. And he says, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered that way? See, that's the reaction of Job's friends. Ah, they must have been especially bad and God is punishing them, you know, by these disasters. And Jesus says, no. But he says also, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so the 9-11 disaster was, was a kind of crisis point for Americans. And in some ways, the COVID disaster was a crisis point for us too. But it should have been used for people to repent and to say, you know, this is a reminder, this world is not is an ugly place. So not to be finger pointing so much in terms of, oh, this came about because so-and-so was a sinner, right? Well, that's up to God. We don't know the secrets of God and it's presumptuous to go beyond the scripture. But through scripture itself, we can say, look, this is a world that is out of joint. This is a world that is suffering from the consequences of Adam's sin. And we better le learn to repent. We better learn that, that our sufferings are a reminder that the judgment is coming. So there's things like that. But I would also point to the way in which God blesses us personally, one-on-one, -on -one, many things in life, right? So things often come out better than we deserve. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a friend who you know, asked, how, how are you doing? And he says, better than I deserve. That's a regular answer. I said, that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> so, so partly, we got to learn to celebrate every little thing, not just, you know, the big things. Oh, I've met my future wife. You know, I'm just happily in love. Right. But I got out of bed and I'm able to get up and walk. <laughs> and uh, 
so celebrate little things because they're blessings of God, right? We know that because God is in control. We know he's good to us. So there's many things, little things that we can interpret. And sometimes I believe because we have the principles of the Bible, we can interpret even bigger things, right? So, so our church is a happy place. Why is it a happy place? Well, because we love the Lord, right? And he's using that. He's blessing us as a community. But what if we've got some contention, right? What if we've got, we're on a point of division? Well, then we need to repent. <laughs> so there's lessons. What I'm saying is, right, even in that situation, there's lessons. And, and that would call us to prayer, right? Pray that we will not have a falling out in our church that is contrary to the word of God. Maybe some people need to be excommunicated because they're in sin and they won't repent. Well, that too is biblical. So there's guidelines in the Bible. We'll go out to the larger society, right? What's happening to America? What's happening to the Western world? Many Christians feel they're going down the tubes. But the reason why you feel that is because you've got some biblical guidelines. So you're able to interpret what's happening as, in many respects, not approved by God. But of course, it's mixed, right? Because even the people who, who are advocating ungodly things, often they're twisting around biblical values, Christian values that are in the past. Uh, so, you know, for instance, this concern for minorities, minority sexual groups, right? So, so let's make sure that the, uh, the gays and the lesbians and the transgender people are not mistreated. Well, they're made in the image of God. See, that's, that's coming out of biblical morality, but it gets twisted. Well, we've got to approve these people in their lifestyle. No, you don't, right? So Christian comes in and can see certain things. It's not as bad as it could be because God is still active and still people are wrestling with Christian values. How are we going to analyze all that? We're going to analyze it in terms of, of what the Bible is teaching us, right? That's going to enable us to sift through the good and the bad. We don't know what the God is doing in detail in terms of, well, is this particular event on judgment on certain person? Although even there, sometimes you can see it, right? So a person is is addicted to illegal drugs and the drugs become a kind of idol in his life. And then he gets an overdose and he dies. Well, that's a judgment. We don't know that in every case, but we can see the correlation and we can see the biblical basis in, the, in a case like that. And sometimes even Christians suffer. You know, I, I, I got into a tight corner and I told a lie and eventually I lost my job because the lie was found out. Well, that's discipline from God. That's how God deals with his children, right? Of you sometimes have to bear the consequences of your sin and you have to learn to do better the next time and ask for the grace of God to empower you. But we do that because we know Hebrews. Hebrews 12 talks about God disciplining us. So there are things like that where the Bible does give principles. And I believe sometimes you can extend it out to societies where we see a whole society going astray uh, from, from biblical standards of morality or just from the worship of God, right? How many people are serving Christ the Lord in America? Maybe not so many fewer than there were 20 years ago because there were more people who were Christians in name back then, but they're 
their commitment was superficial, if not non-existent. So, so there's things like that where it's hard. And I believe sometimes people want, they're scared, right? We're scared of the future because things are happening that we can't understand. And, and that's an occasion to trust God to say, look, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, God is still our refuge. That's Psalm 46, right? That's a psalm right, to learn from as well. Of look, these guys in the past, they confronted huge disasters sometimes. They had to learn to trust God. We're not immune from that. Very good. Pastor, did you have anything you want to add on top of there? Yeah. Um, so like Daniel, for example, um, the speaks of the abomination of desolation. Revelation speaks to, um, uh, to that event. It's just that the reader understand, you know, having that, the people, right, um, understanding the, the meaning and the event of the abomination of desolation. Um, there's a certain aspect of which we were supposed to understand certain events, um, and then there's others that we're going through currently. Where we have Psalm 73, for example, doesn't understand, doesn't understand, and then says, "Enter in the sanctuary of God." And then I understood. Yeah, and understanding that often comes because uh, of God's interpretation of the current events, and sometimes it. We have to do a little bit of work on our end. It's not just written in black and white ink in our current events as to what the meaning is, but there does seem to be an aspect in which when we can look at it from a, uh, a perspective of what God has revealed throughout history, we can better understand the purpose of what we're going through now. Would, would that be a, a good summary of what you said? Yes, yes, right. And we look forward to the new heaven and new earth. There's many mysteries until we get there of, you know, how God is working things. Uh, and so our hope has to be in God and not sort of in, oh, I've got a roadmap, right, for the future where, where I know exactly which town, <laughs> right, we're now at. The prophecy doesn't work that way. There are some, you know, general... Uh, guidelines to prophecy, but the big thing about prophecy for this age is the spread of the gospel, and it is taking place, uh, and and we can take heart in that and see, you know, the Lord is carrying out his will. The gospel is spreading. People are coming to faith in Christ all over the world, some countries more than others, and, you know, that varies from time to time, but, but we've got, uh, we've got hundreds of that it looks like hundreds of thousands of believers in christ in iran that's the last place in the world where they say come on now how can that be because this is this is a, a islamic theocracy very tight very fanatical government persecutes the christians vigorously and there they are they're still coming to christ Yeah, that's that's it's always great news, right? Um, anyone coming to Christ, and that's very encouraging. Um, so, I guess we got uh, how are you doing, Doctor? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're a little we're 
get 10 minutes from an hour and a half. So we'll try to wrap oh, it I up. See, here. I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you can be with your wife and um, yeah. So, so I guess um, that was such a powerful message you just gave and I, I'd hate to change the, the flow of things, you know, but sure. um, but I mean, what are some of the dangers that Christians face when we lose sight of history? You know, especially today. Like, yeah. why is it important to hold on to history? Why is it important when we lose track of it? You know, right. I think one of the temptations in American Christianity is that Christianity gets converted into a psychological self-help mechanism. Uh, right. Of uh, I get myself thinking good thoughts and and uh, that will help me to get through the day help me to have a positive attitude well it may in a short run but the world is not about you as the center right it's about god as the center and and it can be very self-centered the, the psychological approach it's all about my good feelings about my sort of stable mental health rather than about the wonder of who God is and the wonder of his love in Christ and the majesty of what Christ has accomplished. And it's those things that actually transform people and that ravish the heart in the proper way. They, they, they give us kind of satisfaction and joy that is just not replaceable by anything in this world. Some people, of course, are going after material things there's this bumper sticker he who dies with the most toys wins oh that's a paul <laughs> think about it right it's just the most toys accumulate no that doesn't give you the satisfaction which we were meant to have in knowing god and fellowship with god so but that satisfaction is not about i'm i've got to feel good if you start <clears throat> i told my boys when they were growing up if you set your whole heart on being happy, and that is a main goal, you will be miserable. But if you give that up, totally give that up, and devote yourself to serve God no matter what, you will be incredibly happy. That's a paradox. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus has these paradoxes in his own teaching. And when you think about them, they're shocking. Right? It's shocking to say, I've got to give up all my hopes of happiness and all this, you know, clinging to things, whether it's the outward toys or whether it's the mental happiness of, of I feel good about myself. I feel good about the world. You know, I feel in a good mood and I just go through life, you know, floating on a cloud because I'm so... Uh, I'm so full of, of disconnect from the sufferings of the world. It's all about you. You see that picture, whether it's the external toys or whether it's the internal psychology, it's all about you. That is not the road to happiness. The road to happiness is God's road. <laughs> so, so I do believe that that's a historical road too of saying you are important because you were in history. But there is a large history leading to the new heavens and the new earth. And you've got to have that in mind and realize 
that what you go through now is not the center of the world either, right? You go through sufferings, you go through bad times, you go through good times. It's all in the purpose of God and it's all leading forward to the eternal happiness of communion with God or the eternal unhappiness of, of suffering from the wrath of God. That's very good. So Dr. Poitras, what are some ways that you would encourage Christians today to not have that self-centered kind of trying to just figure themselves out and be happy and positive? Yeah, yeah. Oh, how, how do we find that hope? How do we right, cling right. to Christ? Yeah, well, I mean, you already gave the solution, cling to Christ, right? But Christ has appointed what the theologians call means of grace. They're not a vending machine where you just put in the coin and you get the soft drink out. It's not a mechanical out thing, but they are means that God uses to continue and deepen his fellowship with us. What are those means? Well, uh, Nate, I'm sure you know them, but our, our listeners may not know them all. So the means are uh, the preaching of the word and the reading of the word, that is the Bible and prayer and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I would add communion with the saints. Uh, all those are things that God has appointed. And all of them in one way or another take you out of yourself, if you think about it, right? Reading the word, you're listening to God. And don't just read the word for some kind of men mental psychological feeling for the day, right? Because then it's back into yourself. Read the word to listen honestly to a God who is bigger than you and who will surprise you and who will get you angry sometimes because he doesn't do or say what you'd like him to. But then that's, that's one of the ways in which he causes us to grow. So reading the word yourself, going, going to church. I mean, I'm appalled by how many people who say that they're Christians don't go to a church, or if they go to a church, it's not a reliable believing church. It's not a church that proclaims the word. We've had some visitors in our home church lately, a number of people who are saying, oh, I'm so glad this is church where I belong because they're, they're preaching the Bible. <laughs> thought, really? <laughs> you, it took until now for you? <laughs> I don't say that, of course, <laughs> but, but I'm thinking, oh boy, I'm glad you're here, but I'm so sorry you know, that you spend so much time wandering around. So there's that and there's prayer, right? That takes us out of ourselves. We're not just going through a list. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But prayer is a time to talk to God, to pour out our heart before him, to be honest about what we think we need, but also to plead with him to deepen our own commitment to him, to forgive our sins, to, you know, all aspects of praying to him. And, and uh, again, the, the fellowship of the church helps that because we get models of prayer, if it's a good church, right? The pastoral prayer models the way we should be praying. And there are models of it in the Bible too, in the book of Psalms in particular. And then there's sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper. And, uh, and uh, so those ought to be regularly practiced in the church, right? In appropriate, God-centered and Bible-instructed way, and then finally the fellowship of the saints. So 
So I hope people are in small groups together too. Uh, and you know that they have more intimate fellowship than just uh, meet with a thousand other people and I don't know any of their names, right? <laughs> so, so all those things, they're things that God himself has appointed, right? And they're, as I say, they're not automatic. You can go to the church and just be a hypocrite, right? And pretend that everything's okay and you're, you're just going through the motions and nothing is happening in your heart. But at the best, these things are things that God uses and uses us to grow. And as, as you point out in asking the question, they take us out of ourselves. That's so big a problem in the United States. There's so much propaganda in the ads and elsewhere that's saying, you got to serve you, right? You got to find all that you can be. You have all these rhetorics of, uh, and uh, and it, it it has an effect even on Christians, I believe, in in orienting us. Self becomes an idol. Right, it becomes the last thing back. We really worship ourselves, and if God can help us. Right, and come alongside and support the idol, then so much the better for him. Well, that's reversing the whole thing. It's appalling. Very good. That's very encouraging, Dr. Poitras. Um, before we, we close out, because we've been privileged with such a blessing uh, having you on, Dr. Poitras, uh, Pastor Jonathan, did you have anything that you would like to add to or yeah, ask? I guess I'd have one, one last question. Um, when I was much younger, I greatly benefit, benefited from uh, Edmund Clowney's lectures on preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Gave me a, um, a love for the Old Testament that I had not had prior to then um, and to study it in much more detail than ever I had before. Um, this particular book that you've done refers to history, and I know that when I was also a kid, there was a lot of what uh, people have called chronological snobbery, thinking that uh, their, their own age must be better than things that have gone before, but I, as the older I grow and the more that it seems that media has seemingly changed a lot of how we view the world around us, uh, this chronological snobbery has given way to almost an utter historical amnesia. Um, we must have a right view of history, as you pointed out. But part of that is also knowing history. Um, out, outside of the Bible, um, the history, how would you recommend us as congregants, uh, a pastor, um, Christians in general, actually get into studying history better and trying to implement some of these principles? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. I'm not sure uh, I have that much wisdom on it. Uh, I do believe that I, you, I mean, let me say the obvious. I believe the obvious thing is to start with the history in the Bible. All right, because then it, it's God himself setting the right context for understanding the history you're you're in a safer mode of reading than when you go out and uh and you know read some of the history uh, of later times uh and and i think again the visions in the body of christ the visions of gifts diversity of gifts 
mean that not everybody is going to uh, be that interested in history. Uh, but uh, I believe pastors can expose people gradually to fragments of church history, uh, either as they become relevant to a particular sermon or more often in the Sunday school class. So, so our church has, has sometimes offered, uh, there was one course basically on the Reformation uh, that, that went through some of the things and, and it didn't pretend to do the same things that a sermon would do, but just inform people more and appreciate what God has been doing in the past. If I had to pick out a particular periods for study, and this will show my own prejudices. <laughs> one would be the first few centuries after the founding of the New Testament church, um, because there, they, there's a struggle for the spread of Christianity, heavy persecution at times from the Roman emperors, uh, controversies over the, the Christ and the Trinity doctrine that has to be worked out. So it's very interesting to see that. And we know, because we know the Bible, we can do certain evaluations. We can see that God is working out things and settling the church down in some respects. And the spread of the gospel, of course, is one of the things that is in his purposes. So it's not that hard to see generalities, although, again, you have to be cautious in evaluating individual figures. Athanasius is a hero because he defended the deity of Christ it doesn't mean he's perfect, right? So, so you gotta have, you don't worship the heroes. <laughs> they're, they're, they have feet of clay. The, uh, the other period, which is extremely exciting, which my wife specialized in, did her doctorate in, is the Reformation, because the gospel is rediscovered and, and the world is set on fire by it. It's so exciting to see what's happening and so evident that the hand of God is in it. Although again, the details, you know, you, you, there's lots of questions of why, did, why didn't God do this or that, right? And the reformers, again, are men of clay. They're not perfect, but uh, wonderful things happen. Uh, the other thing is the spread of the gospel to other nations, is particularly with 19th century missions. Now, Kenneth Scott Latter, Latterette wrote a book. Now, this is a big thing to get into. It's a huge book on on the history of Christianity, but he was very interested in missions. So it's an orientation, which is very helpful uh, so that we don't just center on, you know, what's happening in the United States or, or, uh, or our roots in Europe, but realize um, that the, the gospel has gone worldwide. So there are things like that. And I think that sometimes uh, the churches who have missionaries that they are sponsoring or that their joint sponsors, you know, a number of churches uh, in an area get together to sponsor a single missionary family, right? Because they, they, they don't have enough money to do it all by themselves. So they have the missionary families and that these families will return from time to time, give them reports. If the missionaries are good, they will educate them a little bit of what's happening in the country, right? And what's the history of that country and why there's challenges to the gospel so that they can fit that, uh, what they're doing into it, the framework of history. And again, it's, it's one where we can see the hand of God because we know that he's working to spread the gospel and to bring people to Christ. 
So those are examples of the kinds of things that we can do. And I think there's something, a great deal to be said to studying other countries and other times than our own. Because the temptation is to be caught up in the moment. Now, you talked about historical amnesia, and I certainly agree that's a danger of just caught up in the moment. The past doesn't matter. No, get yourself, get yourself into a biblical view of the world where the entirety of history is, is the, uh, the scene on which God paints his, his plan and works it out. And, and get yourself out of the hole of just thinking that today is the only important day, <laughs> right? So I think that can give us perspective. And there have been times in history, for instance, the time of the judges. That's an appalling time when you read, read it and see how much confusion there was, how much sin there was, how much the people that, of God themselves were failing and falling back into idolatry. You think that our time is worse than that? <laughs> I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> that was a really bad time, but God brought us through, right? It, 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 there's, there's an end to that suffering through the book of Judges and the appalling confusions and idolatries and falling back into sin again and again. But the story is larger than that, right? And the story of God is larger than the story of the next 10 years in America. Very good. Pastor, did you have anything you'd like to add on top of that? No, I thought that was very good. Awesome. So Dr. Poitras, we've talked a lot about history today. What does the future look for you as you go forward? I know you've been at Westminster for over 40 years. Uh, right. What, what's your plan moving forward as you get as you're getting up in age? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, different people do different things at different times of life and different people have different callings. And I don't want to, uh, I want to express my respect for people who have taken different tracks if they've reached um, the more uh, senior years, let's say. But my wife and I, of course, uh, my wife matters to me too, right? I've got to, we've got to think things and pray things through together. But it so happens in the providence of God that I married a woman who doesn't have retirement in her blood, <laughs> and neither do I. So so as we've talked about it, of course, we, we've had to think about, yeah, we're getting older. Our, our health is, is uh, more questionable. We can't take it for granted. So we've talked and prayed, and we decided we're going to serve the Lord as long as he gives us strength, physical, mental, spiritual. We're just going to continue on. We don't see a normal kind of retirement, right, that people envision. That's not us. So I plan to continue to teach at Westminster as the Lord gives me strength and my wife to do various projects she's involved in. And, and uh, we, we are open to continuing ministry in Taiwan as well. We've been involved there, traveling there about once a year since uh, 2012. And that's a story in itself. But my wife was a missionary there before we were married. She learned Mandarin Chinese and her Chinese is, she still speaks it very well. So. 
So it's an opportunity for us and it's a part of the world that needs strengthening, right? We're looking at this global context where Taiwan is a wonderful place to, uh, to minister because it's, uh, I think, a platform for reaching the Chinese language community all around the world. Right? You can do things in Taiwan, you can't do in mainland China, of course, right? So uh, we are aware of that. And we are trying to help the Chinese Christians and, and you know, uh, train them further. So that's, that's one of our, you know, things on our list. But my teaching at Westminster is one as well, as long as the Lord enables me. I've, I've cut back a little bit on, you know, the number of things I'm involved in at Westminster, uh, as, as I believe. I know I've got to assess how much energy do I have in that kind of thing, but I'm glad to be involved. And so far, Westminster is glad to have me continue as well. Amen. That's such an encouragement. Well, uh, Dr. Poitras, you've been such a huge uh, blessing in my own personal life. Uh, there's many moments where I doubted the Christian faith and, and went through years of depression and wondered if I, if I was mm -hmm. believing the right things and if inerrancy was true and, and, and all various kinds of topics that my pastor knows well <laughs> that mm. has come to my house to minister to me when I was just at rock bottom. And I'm just so thankful for my brothers um, and, and those that I never even met, met like you. And, and you have no idea what an impact and, and encouragement you've been to me. And you didn't even know who I was. And I just want to thank mm -hmm. you so much for that, uh, that uh, the Lord really used you to keep me pressing on in the faith and to hold fast to an inerrancy, even when my rationality and my own reductionistic approaches didn't seem like they're working out. And I just am so grateful for your humility before the word of God. You're uh, not willing to want to speak more than it says or less than it says. And it's just been such a, such a blessing to me and God really using me uh, or used, not me, used you in my life. And I'm just very grateful for that. So in closing, what encouragement would you have for younger pastors and for, for people that uh, are this, this uh, I guess you could say midlife crisis generation that mm -hmm. has to kind of carry the torch for what, what encouragement, what comfort, what advice would you give to those people? Yes, well, Elizabeth Elliot has a motto. I mean, she went through her share of suffering uh, that, that I won't get into. But out of that came a motto, do the next thing. <laughs> and it's, it's so amusing and it's so profound in its own way of saying, you know, God is, will show you the next step. And it may be just uh, put, put the dirty clothes in the laundry, right? Put the soap in the, in the container, right? Start the thing. That's the next thing, right? And of course, as a, as a woman and a mother, she had her share of doing very ordinary things. So though, you know, the Lord blessed her, she was written in incredibly helpful books, but do the next thing. And, and I think sometimes we get grandiose uh, views of, of uh, dreams, and it's all right to dream, but, but uh, I think of the book of Jeremiah, there's somewhere in Jeremiah, I think, where he says, you know, do you imagine great things for yourself? He says, uh, 
no, you know, it's a, you, you got to be faithful and doing the next thing, whether that's big or small. And pastors, I, I had one um, Presbytery conference where they wanted me to speak. And it was a presbytery with a lot of pastors who are pastors of small churches, small rural communities, small towns, that kind of thing. So you can easily get discouraged because nothing is changing dramatically, right? You're not doubling your membership in two years and that kind of thing. And, uh, and these people could easily become discouraged and feel worn out. I thought, what can I say to them? Well, I'm, I hope the Lord helped them. But what I stressed was, you got to serve God and seek satisfaction in his glory and not in human praise. But, you know, if I can come back to inerrancy, there, there are a number of very good books on inerrancy at various levels, right? And, and any one of them can be helpful. I think the most massive is is John Frame's book on the Doctrine and the Word of God. But I tried to do my little bit uh, in inerrancy in the Gospels, inerrancy in worldview. Inerrancy in the Gospels, I do more than, and than any other place to talk about the struggles and that people have intellectual struggles and that that is okay. The, you know, suffering is not only suffering, oh, I've got a disease or I'm being persecuted, but I'm intellectually suffering because there seems to be a conflict between, you know, what the Bible says and something else. And so people intellectually suffer. Well, that's of a piece with all the other kinds of suffering. It's in the end, it's not different. And, and I think it can help people to understand God brings these things on people in order that we may grow, in order that we may repent, in order that we may lose our pride, all kinds of things that God does through it. Uh, so I, I believe the inerrancy question in the end is many-sided. Of course, we have arguments, right? Of course, we have uh, reasons that we can give and the trustworthiness of Christ and what he says about the Old Testament. You know, there's all kinds of things like that. But in addition, there is, I think, this personal side to it. And there's, you might say, the kind of situational side of realizing we're in a culture that is going to hack away at us, right? There are voices in the culture that are determined to, to attack our faith directly or indirectly. So, so, you know, being realistic and saying, yeah, look, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to suffer, right? I'm going to be at odds with the world. I'm going to be at odds with myself to some extent, because not of all life it's going to be, be uh, uh, traveling in a chariot to heaven, right? And just enjoying the scenery. <laughs> it's not going to be totally like that. Paul says in Acts one point, as he's traveling through and appointing elders in the new churches, he delivers the message through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What kind of a positive, uh, a positive uh, thinking message is that, right? But Paul is telling them the straight truth. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's part of the Christian life and it's not part of the American dream. You know, for many people, it's all about being happy. 
as we talked about. And, and so people get deluded to feel my Christian life is not working because I'm not happy. Right? I'm not enjoying things as I might. And, and uh, that reminds me of another thing. I'm sorry to go on this way, but, but I was invited to do a kind of a conference about science and faith at a church, which is right next door to the University of Delaware. So you can imagine, you know, quite a few college students, and we set up a special meeting with the collegians after the morning service. And there was also there a professor, I believe, of engineering who taught at the University of Delaware. And he made a statement which has stuck with me ever since. He says, I've seen people go to college and lose their faith. But there's hardly a single instance where they've lost their faith for intellectual reasons. The number one reason is hedonism. They want to do what they want to do. But yeah, that's not too surprising because that is the college atmosphere nowadays, right? And, and if, you, if you're a Christian believer, you can't participate in that cultural thing, which can look so attractive from outside. Actually, it's pretty grim inside, but, but uh, it looks very attractive. So, you know, there's a lot of things like that where, where I think the Bible gives us, enables us to stand back, right? To know God is God. The world of history is going where it's going to go under the complete control of God. I don't need to worry. Cast all your cares on him, Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Uh, so all those things are important. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Poitras. Um, <clears throat> John, did you have any concluding questions, thoughts, anything? No, I, no, I don't. All right. Well, Dr. Poitras, would you do the privilege, before I uh, stop the recording, would you pray for us and pray oh, for those that are listening? That would be yes, great. Yes. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful for this time together. And it calls to my mind so many uh, uh, aspects of how great you are, uh, what love you have shown. If only we could really grasp your greatness, or really grasp the love of Christ, which has been manifested, which is out there, and yet we need to digest it. We need to to appropriate it into our hearts. And we know that is the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so we'd pray for ourselves, for the three of us here who have been in dialogue, but also for the listeners, and that you would work an increase of, of understanding who you are, understanding Jesus and his love, um, of hearing the old, old story, but hearing it with ears that uh, enable it to, to penetrate. And that we would be faithful servants through thick and thin, through up and down as the way Paul expresses it, uh, being brought low and having plenty. Whatever comes to us in your hand, that uh, we would uh, continue and even grow in trusting you until that time when we enter into glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is great. I will uh, stop the recording.